From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. Historically, right, uh, children with OI were known as pillow babies because they were passed around on pillows. It's not the green agenda, Joe. That's where you're absolutely out of touch with this. It's not the green agenda. It's all our agendas. Don't get me going, Ray. Just no, no. Yeah. <laughs> um, we got you half going already. So <laughs> I kissed the Blarney son three times, man. I can't stop talking. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, winter is coming. How to avoid the dreaded twindemic. Is vandalising priceless artworks a legitimate form of protest? And just what is the greatest concert film of them all? That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that's already feeling a little tickly in the throat. A soft start to the musings on the news. The newsings, if you will. On this morning's Ryan Tuberty show, as our host ponders the suitability of a certain film for midweek viewing. I watched the first 10 minutes of a film that I don't think I've ever watched before. I thought I had, but I don't think I did. And it was on RT and I had recorded it. But it wasn't right for midweek viewing. It was destined for weekend, probably Sunday viewing. And I'll go, I'll go back to it. But it's uh, A Room with a View. Um, and I'd forgotten what, how, how beautiful it was. You know that Merchant Ivory productions that they do so well? Uh, Helena Bottom Carter, very young in it. And um, Daniel Day-Lewis is in it. Denham Elliott is in it. Judy Dench is in it. Um, uh, and a whole guy cast of thousands, but it's beautiful. I've never been to Florence. Uh, I've been to Rome and a few, and to Naples, but never to Florence. And funny enough, I'm reading a book. Can't really talk about it right now because it's it's an Irish author who's, it's not coming out till January. So they, they always say, please don't mention it before. So I won't really get into it other than to say it's it's it, it features uh, Rome very heavily in it. So I feel... I'm in Rome. You know, I was only talking about this yesterday. There is nothing more pleasurable than reading a book about a place you're going to. You know, if you're on a train somewhere or it could be in Ireland. Like if you go to Connemara to read Star of the Sea by Joseph O'Connor is one of the best things you'll ever do. Equally, if you're going to Paris, it could be Hemingway, you know, whatever it might be or uh, to to bring the mood, if you like. So I feel I'm, I feel very this very Italian vibe going on, thanks to the book I'm reading based in Rome albeit during the World War Two, but also um, a room with the view, which I will, as, as I say, watch on Sunday. What is, of course, suitable midweek or any time at all, viewing, if you're Ryan Tuberty, is US politics. What I did get caught up in last night was the Capitol Hill riots uh, committee hearings, um, which I'd say there was probably about seven of us in the country watching those with, with the same interest uh, but nevertheless, the rest of us, the rest of you probably heard bits and pieces of it on the news. But I, it's just that sort of thing is, to me, just fascinating. So people will watch football all night long and I'll watch politics all night long like this. And and I did. And it was just, new, it included new footage. You might have heard a bit of it in Marlon, but there's a piece they didn't play that I, I thought was more striking. I was watching it on CNN this morning before I came in, where, where they were talking about the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. And Nancy Pelosi, she, you know, some people will say, no, she's too left and she's too old and she's too mad. And others will say she's extraordinary figure um, on, on, you know, for the Democrats an age proving to be just a number when you see. It's worth watching back later, to be honest with you, if you didn't see the footage of it, how she does. So they, they took all the leaders of the, of the of Congress and bust them to uh, a place two miles south of Capitol Hill and put them basically in a room together. And if ever there was a unity of purpose, it was that time. So you had Mitch McConnell from the Republicans, you had Nancy Pelosi, you had Chuck Schumer, Charles Schumer, 
all sitting around going, what's happening? What is going on? And they're on the phone to the Secretary of Defence. They're saying, where, you know, what, tell, tell the president to call these creatures off. Tell them to go home uh, and to, to fix things, get more people in. This is, they're defecating in the building and around the place. It, it really is quite, quite, quite stunning the, how they're trying to deal with it. And at one point, Nancy Pelosi's on the phone again and she's seen talking to Vice President Mike Pence. I was really quite moved by this conversation. I don't know why, but the way she, she, she's talking to him is it just maybe it's because it, American politics is so divisive and divided and so sad, actually, that this moment of peace and love <laughs> kind of I, I found it very affecting. Hi, Mr. Vice President. Hi. Yeah, we're okay. We're here with Mr. Schumer, Mr. McConnell, the leadership, House and Senate. And how are you? Oh, my goodness. Where are you? But are you not very safe? Well, that we're still not safe enough for us to go back. We're being told it could take days to clear the Capitol. We've gotten a very bad report about the conditions of the young house floor. Okay, and that caused back. Okay. I worry about you being in that Capitol, though. Don't let anybody know where you are. You know, it, I just thought it was, a, it was a mother, it was a colleague, it was a friend, it was a leader. Um, it was kindness in the middle of all the darkness. And... Uh, and to his credit, Mike Pence was probably saying something similar back. You know, I mean, this was not this is not a partisan um, uh, take on it, but it was, it was just. I, I mean, please watch it back. It's, it, you, you couldn't ask for more drama on any series that you might be watching. Really? Mm, maybe. This, mind you, is coming from the guy who refuses to watch Breaking Bad. Mm? But I digress. Let's check in on some UK TV presenters, shall we? And they're still going on about poor Holly and Phil. I mean, okay, Holly and Phil were given passes to, as journalists, to to not queue for twenty four hours with with the people, and they chose to take the passes, and they went in and saw the Queen in lying in state. And since then, how many people have signed a petition? Seventy seven thousand people have signed a petition to get them sacked from their jobs doing breakfast television. So at these awards last night, the National Television Awards last night. And they won for our best you know, morning programme, whatever it might be. It doesn't really matter. Best daytime award. And they walked to the stage to collect their award and they started getting booed from the audience. I mean, that's how this thing is really not going away. <laughs> you would think it would calm down a little bit, but they were booed. And normally Holly and Phil, what they do, it's a bit of a shtick. They go out on the chair and have the crack. And then sometimes they, quote unquote, go directly from the nightclub to the show and then they're giggly and a little bit hungover. I don't know if it's all, if it's real or imagined, but anyway, it adds to the frisson of excitement to their win and so on. But uh, she was in the back of a car at 10 o'clock last night heading straight for bed. <laughs> no time to gloat and no time to be seen having uh, a lark. So that story rumbling on, God help them. Well, skipping the queue in the UK is nigh on unforgivable, isn't it? How do they come back from that? They'll need some really good distraction techniques to move people's attention away from their bad behaviour. Look over there. They're burning stuff. Channel 4 has bought... The, check this out for an idea for a TV show. I'll do it for a show. This is what they're saying. They've bought paintings, a series of paintings by problematic artists, including art by Rolf Harris, currently in prison for sex offences, and Adolf Hitler, no need for a description of previous career. 
And what they're going to do is, it's called Art Trouble. I think it's really clever. And they're going to sit down with the painting, panel of experts and, a, and a members of the public, as far as I understand it, and look at this painting by Hitler and say, what are we to do with it? Keep it or take a flamethrower to it? Is it important to keep it as a piece of historical documentation from the paintbrush of the most awful human being that stalked the earth in the 20th century and maybe beyond? Or should it just be given the bin and, 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 and destroy it forever and ever again? And this then bleeds into the discussion about statuary. Should you take it down or does it remind you of the awfulness? You know, that, that, that's, that's the whole debate they're talking about. Uh, but it sounds, it sounds really intriguing. You could equally sit down and watch movies starring Kevin Spacey or directed by Woody Allen or Roman Polanski and, and ask the film students or, or anyone else, were you comfortable watching that? You know, I mean, the amount of films I would watch that I hadn't seen for ages and up comes before a Weinstein production. And I kind of go, oh, crikey, yeah, I forgot about that. And you ask yourself, do you, do you, is, is it taking away from enjoyment of the movie? Should you watch it? Are you being oversensitive? Is it just a movie? I these are the discussions. I think they're of great interest because when you look at it in The Guardian this morning, as reported uh, by the Irish Times, who bought the article, it says a Brothers of Italy politician who collects fascist memorabilia has been elected Speaker of the Upper House of the Italian Parliament. And this is Ignazio La Russa, a former defence minister whose father was secretary of... Mussolini's fascist party and this is the party that, that is uh, about to take party uh, take um, office courtesy of a big win Miss Maloney as she is going to be the next Prime Minister of Italy and she's been saying oh no we're not really we've got we've, we've got rid of our fascist past uh, it's all gone but this guy who collects fascist memorabilia who's uh, as I say well he's not his father's keeper but his dad was Benito Mussolini's uh, fascist party's secretary and you know they, they, they keep every time every time another day passes by they find another guy in the party was they found a photograph of him doing the Nazi salute and he's going no I was just trying to tell people not to put their hands up like that kind of Dr. Strangelove style so it's just a little there's just a smell off that whole thing I just worry a little bit the smell of fascism is a little worrying isn't it and it's turning up in more and more places so look, let's leave the smell behind for now and close the book on today's newsings from the Ryan Tuberty Show and move on with our lives. There's been a lot of talk as the winter approaches about the dangers of a twindemic, COVID and the flu, taking hold here and overwhelming our health system. On this morning's Today with Claire Byrne, Professor Cleana O'Farrelly, Professor of Comparative Immunology at Trinity College Dublin, and Dr Amy Morgan, GP in Drogheda, joined Claire to discuss the best ways to avoid catching the flu or COVID or both as the temperature drops and we move more indoors. Claire started with Amy and where we are with COVID. What are you seeing in your own surgery? Are you concerned that there are increasing numbers now who are getting COVID? Yeah, and and obviously we're very cognizant every year of the pressures that are on our health service. Um, you know, every winter, um, and this winter will be will be no different. Um, so yeah, as you said, COVID numbers going up, and then the problem is, I, I think, just it, it blends into all the 
other respiratory viruses that are circulating at the moment. There was possibly maybe a little bit of a buffer last year and that people were very motivated, they were very COVID aware and we were taking a lot of measures to, I suppose, restrict our activities and potentially to stop passing on an infectious illness. But those restrictions are are gone now and people are going about their, their daily lives. So, so naturally when people are mixing, there's going to be more viruses that are circulating and it's very hard for any clinician and, and us as GPs to be able to, when you have someone sitting in front of you, to be able to tell the difference clinically between one and the other. So um, so I think we have to have our guard up and it is going to be a busy winter. Then Claire turned to Cleana to stress the importance of vaccination. It's important to reiterate though how important vaccines are and how well they're working. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the evidence is just overwhelming um, that the vaccine um, mitigates illness. So far fewer people um, will get sick and go into hospital. And that figure that you quoted, that one third of the people in hospital because of COVID are unvaccinated, are an indication of exactly what we're talking about. Now, again, some people will still get sick, even though they are vaccinated. But just overall in the population, it's a vaccination saves on death and hospitalisation. So to echo, re-echo Amy's um, words, uh, everybody needs to get their booster and get vaccinated. And if I could add in, Claire, um, if people would get their flu vaccine as well, because just as Amy says, um, all the other respiratory viruses are, are going to be whirling around this winter. Mm-hmm. Now, here's an interesting one from somebody who says, I'm 75 years old. I've had four COVID vaccines. I received the last one in May. I've been called for another one and I'm wondering, should I get it? Can one have a reaction to too many vaccines? And I, I have another question which echoes that this person is wondering if there's any impact on health if you continually fire up your immune system with a booster at least every year. Absolutely. Well, no, you can never say absolutely. No immunologist is ever going to say absolutely. But again, the uh, the evidence is overwhelmingly that our immune systems are designed to deal with with lots and lots of of stimuli. And um, so we we are constantly um, uh, encountering viruses and bacteria and responding to them. So um, no uh, is the... General answer to that is that you, you, she shouldn't get, or not she shouldn't, she hopefully would not get um, any additional side effects because of support. Uh, a, a kind of a, another point to kind of uh, to reiterate is that um, our the immune response, even to the very good vaccines that we have, it does wane. Now, we don't know why it wanes more in some people than others, but that's the reason why we should get the boosters when they're offered. Mm -hmm. Amy is back with us now. And Amy, this is uh, one for you. If you have a child who turned five after the COVID vaccines were offered to that age group, can you now avail of dose one? Um, in terms of the schedule for the booster dose, so anyone who basically hasn't completed their primary vaccination schedule isn't eligible for a booster. So um, I would probably advise that person just to actually check the date in terms of the, the timings of it. So you can check on the hse.ie but because generally in, in terms of where they're going to get their vaccines, children are usually vaccinated in the vaccine centres. So you just have to be careful just in terms of the age um, that they were eligible for their first vaccine and, and that just we're not confusing booster dose with a primary vaccination yeah, I, th- I, uh, I, think that's, I think that's a question about a primary vaccine for a child who turned five. So when the fir- vaccines were first offered to the five to 12-year-olds, that child would have been four. So when the children turn five, should they now seek their first vaccine out? Yes, they can. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And if someone was unable to get their booster vaccine a few months ago following a COVID infection, can they get it now? They have to be over four months 
from the, the the date that they think that they were uh, that they had a COVID infection. So uh, if they tested positive with an antigen, so the time frame is similar to actually kind of the booster interval dosing. It's it's four months. You have to be four months past your co- your most recent COVID infection before you can actually go ahead and safely get the booster. Okay. Now some people are confused about how long they have to stay at home for, and that's understandable because the guidelines have changed uh, quite a bit over the two years. I've been cleared to go back to work even though I'm testing positive for COVID. Kleena, maybe if you take this one for us. It's been more than 10 days of positive tests. So should that person go back to work even though they're testing positive? Yeah, for the clinician took us there. I mean, uh, if they don't have symptoms, it's unlikely that they're shedding. But um, again, you see, uh, this is the problem with having rules for all of us when we clearly all um, behave differently with the virus. Um, I would be very interested to hear what Amy would have to say in this case. Amy? Really challenging one. It is. It's tricky. And actually, we did encounter that a good bit in in, uh, last winter. Actually, people were very concerned about going back into work. They were testing nearly every day and, you know, they were waiting for the for the for the magic lines to to drop. Um, And I suppose, yeah, and I suppose common sense would would prevail, really. I mean, obviously, if if you're still unwell, um, you know, the the advice obviously would be to to stay at home. Um, And and I said the, the guidelines are guidelines, you know, and they're based on, I suppose, theoretical principles and not an immunologist. But in terms of your level of activity of the virus, so in terms of how much you're shedding and what is the threshold at which you potentially might pass it over to somebody else. So I suppose maybe, I suppose really from a pragmatic point of view, you'd say, look, if you think you're potentially an infectious risk still, um, it probably is wiser to kind of stay away from people, particularly people you would be worried about, so immunocompromised people um, or you know pregnant people or, or people you know who you feel are at extra risk. But in terms of hard and fast guidelines on that, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's an on an individual case by case basis. Okay, here's one. Um, yeah, sorry, Kleena, go ahead. On that one, um, Claire, just to let people know that bits and pieces of the virus can still be floating around in your body, and um, even though the virus isn't replicating. And so um, it is possible that you would still be kind of positive in that case, where the, especially if the symptoms have cleared. Um, and the person doesn't have symptoms anymore, that would suggest that the virus wasn't replicating and that the test was picking up residual um, viral bits. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you, she might be capable of spreading that, that exactly. infection on. Exactly. This one, I had a bad dose recently, not COVID. The cough has lingered even though I feel fine. Should I stay at home? Now that's probably related to the last one. Yes, but if they, uh, again, the clinician <laughs> Amy should comment on this, but um, you, you would be thinking here that uh, because the cough is still lingering, that whatever the viral um, species is that's causing it is, is still there. This person is symptomatic. Um, but we just don't have guidelines to stay at home with, with other viruses. This is what's slightly contradictory about entering into this um, in, into this season now. Well, well, yep. Amy, is it not the case though that if you have any respiratory condition that you shouldn't be around other people? Is that not what the advice says? Yeah, and it was pretty much the standard advice before COVID came into our lives, really. Um, but no one really paid attention <laughs> to it. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. You know, they are predominantly, there are airborne viruses and they spread obviously through kind of droplet spread, you know, so, you know, obviously you're very close contact with somebody and you're working kind of an office situation and, as I said, restrictions in terms of face coverings and all that sort of stuff have, have you know, have been lifted. Like, yeah, I mean, you know, generally if, if you think you're infectious or have a dose of something that 
the, the last place you should really be is in a, in close confines with other people because as you know as, as pointed out previously and, and I think in the HSE promotional campaign and awareness you really actually don't know who's at risk around you you know mm-hmm. um, you could be working with people who are immunocompromised or pregnant people you just don't know so and, and it is a tricky one for people and they do struggle with it because they want to go back to work but they're they're possibly under pressure and you know childcare and all these other things as well so so it is a, it is a tricky one yeah okay. Yep, looks like there's going to be a tricky winter ahead. GP Dr. Amy Morgan and Cleana O'Farrelly, Professor of Comparative Immunology at Trinity College Dublin, talking about the dangers of a twindemic this winter on Today with Claire Byrne. Anti-oil protesters threw Heinz tomato soup over Van Gogh's sunflowers painting in the National Gallery in London today. Deirdre Nucrohor told Joe Duffy on this afternoon's Live Line what she thought of this form of protest. Of course, like it's it's pretty um, it's pretty out there, but I mean I think that what just up oil are trying to 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 bring to the attention of politicians and and society in general that we are past the tipping point and that we need to you know we need to act environmentally. Um, I think this environmental group are trying just to, to hold new fossil fuel licensing and production. And I mean, we are, you know, we are in climate catastrophe. We've passed the tipping point and we're talking today about it. So and 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 just FYI, the, the painting itself wasn't damaged. So um, well, how do you know? Well, it's, it's in the report. The painting wasn't damaged itself. There's that in front of it. So. Yeah, they I threw they threw cans of soup over it. What was the, in- what was the intention threw, to it? They threw so it at, imp- the, at the glass, I think. Well, they threw it at I the think, painting. I think there was there was some there was some um, residue on the on the frame, but anyway, you know. So it's, it's just it's justified because it gets well, publicity. It's, it, but if you if you drill down into what into what you you're, you're kind of saying there, the publicity is to what they're trying to do is bring to the fore. It's not just. They're they're trying to bring attention to what we're talking about now. Emissions, but you're, climate but you're, catastrophe. Yeah, but you're saying you're saying we're beyond beyond the tipping point. Well, we're there, and there are thereabouts. I, I think we are. Absolutely. And how yeah. how throwing two cans of Heinz tomato soup over we're the most famous it. painting in the world? That's, we're talking about it now. That's why. That's so. That just justifies it. Well, we're talking and then about if, it. And then if but if nothing comes of it. Because they've been, and it happened here as well, come, two yeah. years ago, Extinction Rebellion blocked Dublin or whatever for the same, did, yeah. for the same reason. Um, that, did, that didn't make a difference, did it? But if, if you ask yourself, Joe, I mean, we, we, we must make a difference. I mean, you know. Yeah, but I, I think most people agree. We're at a tipping but point I think, yeah, but for, I think most, all of us. But I, th- you know, but I think most people agree that we must make a difference and people are doing their But we're not doing anything and, and, and politicians aren't doing anything. So, I mean, you know, we are screaming. Do something. What, what, we what, have hang to on. collectively. So because collectively because you believe something. you believe that politicians aren't doing anything, even it's though not that I believe <laughs> it's not that I believe the science tells us. The Scientific Journal of Bioscience in in, in twenty twenty. Do you mean politicians? Eleven thousand scientists. Can I speak? Eleven thousand mm. scientists worldwide saying the crisis has arrived. We've now that's, reached the tipping yeah. point. That's twenty twenty. You know, we're, we're we're not talking about that. We're talking oh, about but we are. What, no, what, no. What we're talking about oh, is you see, but, no. I'm, I'm. What we're talking about today is what is vandalising or attempting to vandalise 
the one of the world's most valuable and famous paintings. Is that justified? But and you're saying quite... you're saying it is. I'm saying we are talking about what we need to be talking about now. Every day on on RT nonstop, it's the green agenda. Rightly so. But it's not Every green day. agenda. How would Every it be day. the green agenda? It's it's not the green agenda, Joe. That's we are absolutely out of touch with this. It's not the green agenda. It's all our agendas. It's humanity. Well, I'm sorry. Well, I, 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 no, it's I've, not just the did green you, Hang on. Did you think I was talking about the Green Party? Well, I'm just. I'm not. Saying, I'm not. Hang on. Don't Hang on. Hang on now. Just hang on a sec. I wasn't talking about the Green Party. You know what I'm talking about when I talk about the Green Agenda, that we all have to be much, much more cognizant. That's why we have carbon taxes. That's why coal is is uh, almost uh, impossible to buy. It's out of the reach of most people. It's so expensive, etc., etc. The, the list is endless at this stage. And people... Do you, so you're, so exactly. you're saying, in you're your view, right in your here. view, politicians aren't doing enough, so let's destroy paintings. It's not, it's not my... It's not... It's not just in my view, we are not doing enough as a species. It's, it's, it's all of us have to have to act. And but ha- politicians have to lead. How? But how does that make a difference? Throwing or gluing yourself to but the road? To or... again. It's, we're talking about it, I suppose, really. You know. So, so where do you and, stop? And if Greta, okay, Greta if, if, well, did, Greta, if, if, if next Greta's week, not... if next week they try and destroy a Monet painting in Dublin or whatever, in the Lane Gallery, and we're not, we don't, the the various which happened before on other issues, they decide don't don't give them publicity, don't give them publicity for for attempting to or destroying paintings. What do they do do next? To ju- what's what's justified next if they don't get enough publicity out of destroying paintings? Will they shoot somebody? I think look, I think you 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 know because if they shoot you're, somebody, you're, at least we're talking about it. And what's one person when the planet is going over the cliff? To say anything. So I think you know. I mean, I think I think the bottom line here, Joe, is that we are all as a species responsible. And I think we're now we're again talking about it. And I think you know Greta Thunberg did say you know we cannot business as usual cannot continue. And this is what we're doing. We're doing business as usual because. You know, we, we, we kind of, as a species, we're inclined to say, look, if it, if it doesn't affect me today, then it's not my problem. But it is all of our problems. And it's, and it's politically, it's, it's just, it's, politicians are not just grasping it and they're not doing anything. And I think this is just a... Is that every politician just blanket? Well, I'd say we're not doing enough. Who's we? We're not pushing politicians Who's either. Who's we? Who's we? The species, humans, we're not pushing politicians enough are either. Some, are some more guilty than others? I, don't, I think it's absolutely useless going down that road. I think we are all in this together. Collective responsibility on the climate crisis being brought up by caller Deirdre Necrohor while talking to a not entirely on board Joe Duffy on this afternoon's Live Line. The discussion began about the vandalism of a Van Gogh painting in London today by anti-oil protesters. Toy Show star Adam King's dad, David, joined Ryan Tuberty this morning to talk about his new book for children, Sir Adam the Brave and the Moody Monsters. But before talking about the book, Ryan asked David to tell him about Adam. So I would say Adam is a fantastic young child. He's got a really big heart. He's very kind. He is, uh, he's got a, he loves his brothers and sisters. Um, he has a very grounded life. Um, you know, like, like many other kids that are seven going on eight, he goes to school, he comes home, he does his homework, 
he's into his sports. Uh, he's actually showing this summer. He's showing a real interest in uh, wheelchair racing. Actually, mm. uh, he's doing really, really well out, um, and he's showing a real passion for sport. Um, and he, uh, yeah, he has a very happy existence, and he, he's very involved in his local community. And um, yeah, he, he's just he's just a good, kind kid. And he ha- like I often describe Brian Adam as kind of having like three lives. Like he has, I suppose, the front-facing life that people see. Mm. Um, he has his family life, which in many ways can be private. Um, and then he has his he has his other life, his hospital life, mm. which he has with his hospital family. You know, so he has all that going on as well. But he but he engages all those lives in the in the in the same way as a, as a a happy-go-lucky, kind child, and as a gentleman, you know. He, yes. we're, we always said that to him, to be a gentleman. I think you gave them advice one time, Ryan, um, uh, to the kids when we met you up at the Late Late. You said to them, um, you know, if you read books and have good manners, you'd be amazed at how far you go in life. Yeah. You've no idea how much that stuck with them. Wow. Like, and I think Adam actually does that. You know, he reads books. Yeah. He has good manners. Uh, he's very creative. He loves reading. He loves creating. He loves art. Um, he's, as I said, he's involved in so many different things. He does tennis. He does wheelchair racing. He's taken up Joltis now, uh, music. He's on the he's on the ukulele and all that kind of stuff. Mm. So, uh, yeah, he just has a really a really happy existence. Yeah, and he's a fantastic child. And I love him to bits. And can I? I hope it's not too um, imposing to ask you that. But but briefly, let me ask you about eight years ago when Adam was born and yourself and Fiona were there in the hospital. And when did you know that he wasn't going to be quite like the previous kids? So we knew before. Um, Adam was born. Adam was diagnosed uh, in utero, I think, in the second oh. trimester. So that, that's when we knew Adam would have a brittle bone condition. It was a waiting game. Uh, we, we knew from the scans that um, uh, that, that, that there were there were I suppose, indications in terms of the way he was growing and his bones were developing and so on that there was something up. And so then we got a uh, amniocentesis and a genetic test, which I'm sure. Um, other parents around the country may be familiar with as yes. well, and um, it's, it's, it was tough actually. That that part was tough. It was, it was kind of a waiting game. So you know, it, we went through a number of cycles of finding out what Adam didn't have, you know. And every every time we go to the doctor to find out the next the next genetic result that came back, it was sort of like a, a little bit of torture finding out. Well, it's it's not Down syndrome and it's not achondroplasia. So so there, it's 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 hard because you can't you can't say it's a relief. Because in a way, it's not. Because in a way, you're still in the unknown. So we just had to kind of live in limbo for a while. And then when we found out Adam has osteogenesis imperfecta, um, our doctor um, was amazing at the time. You know, she she the one thing she said to us was, you know, don't go on the internet reading up stuff. Here are three research. Here are three to four research articles. Engage with these. Read these. And that's what we did. And it was. So we were very highly supported at the time, but, uh, but yeah, so it was around that time, and uh, it was an uncertain time in our lives. Very uncertain. I mean, you know, we 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 weren't sure what the future would hold, but um, but I mean, Adam has surprised us at every single turn. Uh, he's been absolutely, he's, a, he's a, a medical marvel, and he's a, he's an amazing child. You know, when, we're very very proud of him. What what is a, a baby, a newborn with brittle bones? How delicate and fragile is is such a little person? Well, it's see they have to guide you, and it's it's so it's hard it's hard to know. But I suppose the standard thing was that like when Adam was born, um, we would have laid him down on a sort of like an airbed, kind of like you know like the lilos you have when yeah, you're when course, you're uh, yeah. in a swimming pool. So he was on a little airbed in one of those, and the first time we held him, like he was, I mean, he was immediately whisked away into an incubator, and uh, he 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 broke his left femur when he was when he was delivered by C-section, and then. Oh. So he was immediately whisked away, and uh, he he was in the incubator on a 
air bed and he needed to have um, you know high flow air or whatever and uh, just to make sure that his lungs weren't overly stressed you know and um, so the first time we held him we held him on a, a little air mattress and yeah that was surreal actually and it was and, and like it, it was very emotional actually because we didn't know if we'd be able to hold him or not and all we wanted to do was just hold him and give him a hug you know it was, it was a very emotional time and um, and then we went to I took him to Temple Street then Fiona was uh, recovering from the section or whatever and I took him to Temple Street for to see a specialist there and to get get on a course of medication which he's now he's now been on and will be on probably for his whole life and uh, it was the first time actually that I, we gave him a bath and that was surreal as well like if you can imagine it you know you're kind of giving the child a bath without actually moving them so we were sort of giving him a bath by sort of dragging baby wipes in between the different crevices in his body and uh, you know four or five people holding him you know so in terms of so we because we didn't know his capabilities or how he'd manage uh, movement and things like that at that time so we just had to sort of be extra careful but at the same time be guided by him and how he was managing things and um and as he got a bit older then you know adam would adam would start to guide us in how to test his own limitations and i think that the 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 aim always was to have him sitting up at a certain age and then standing by by hopefully sitting to stand by the time he was four years old. Mm-hmm. So by the time Adam was four years old, he was able to do like handstands and jump it about the place. And he 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 he, he crawled he crawled around the place so much when he was younger. Do you know like um, if you can picture do you know Mowgli from Jungle Book? <laughs> yes. So Adam has always Adam always crawled like that. Wow. And uh, it, it and we really believe like that's what's made him so so strong. And he's got a really strong core, and he's got great power, and that's why, like, when he goes into the wheelchair for the wheelchair racing, he just has that, you know, like the natural drive forwards that a wheelchair racer has because he's such a strong core. And we believe it's because of his own self-imposed sort of training regime from when he was a young baby. Mm. So the, the minute he could go, and I and I think that's one of the challenging parts, actually, Ryan, of having a child. And look, any child, you know, regardless of ability, is you know how much do you let them off. You know, yeah. um, but in particular Adam's case, like we we were always saying to ourselves, look, how much can we let him off? And we 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 were always of the mind we didn't want to put limitations on him. Now my wife is amazing at this. Sometimes, to be honest, I'm I'm probably the one that freaks out more. I'm the one that would be more likely to say, "Geez, Adam, be careful," <laughs> you know. Um, but we always felt historically, right? Uh, children with OI were known as pillow babies because they were passed around on pillows and. There's research to show that you know that had huge psychological uh, effects on them and their their sense of intimacy with 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 the, the significant adults in their lives is diminished. Yeah. Oh. And we just said we're never we're never going to have that's never going to be the, the existence Adam's going to have. But that's not the way we're going to be. It wouldn't be in tune with what we are about as a family, and we don't want that for Adam. So we just had to make sure that you know as much as we could that we held them and hugged them and loved them like we would with all our children, and and just we let him guide us. And the more. The more we um, let him be free to be himself, the more, the more and more he continues to surprise us, you know. And like I said, I mean, like he's able to stand, he's able to jump and move. And, you know, now he, he does still have a lifelong and life-limiting condition and there are challenges with that. But um, he, he is just incredible. It, it, I, you know what? I, I thank you for that. Honest to goodness. You know I, I feel like I, I know him so much better now. Uh, in a way, because he's, he's become just even more remarkable just thanks to the last Ten minutes of you discussing him. Um, it's, ah, it's, it's, I really mean that. It. David King, father of the more famous Adam, talking to Ryan Tuberty this morning about his toy show starring son. Sir Adam the Brave and the Moody Monsters is the title of David's new book that we didn't have time to talk about.
Now, heating is going to be on everyone's minds and everyone's wallets this winter. So on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne, Evelyn O'Rourke visited a family that have just moved into their new home to see what energy-saving measures work for them. So this particular house was built in the 1960s. There's been various work done on it, done on it over the years. There's a gorgeous open plan, kitchen sitting room, for example, in the back. And new windows were put in over 10 years ago. And the house at the moment has a BER of C2. Now, the new owners, Kieran and Neve, moved in just last week or just before with their three children. They're keen to get the house checked to see what they could do to insulate the house better and bring down those bills that we're all kind of dreading at this point. So here Kieran starts by explaining their situation in their new home. So you are the proud home owner here. Yes, All this indeed. work happening around you here. You're new to the house here. We are. 30th of September is when we got it to the key. So it's what, like 12 days. It's very tidy. Uh, I'm very impressed. Uh, it is. Lots of stuff in storage. That's <laughs> it. Why did you want to get this carried out? Because obviously you bought the house, you knew what you were buying. But why did you want to get this done? Guess it has its BER rating and we know what it was. We were in a B3, this is a C2, so we know for this winter we're going into what could be a colder house. But we also wanted to know what was specific to this house. And I think that's what attracted us to this service is the information we get back. And from that we can maybe make informed decisions on what could be best to, to try and have a warm house, a warm and comfortable house. Now it's a beautiful house, it's in beautiful condition. But you're saying to yourself, right, I want to make this really practical. Okay, so what were the things that you were worried about as a civilian? What were you concerned about? The age of the house and being from, I think, the 60s, I would have been worried about maybe the insulation that's in behind the walls that you don't get to see. The windows in particular, do you need to get them replaced? They seem to be quite expensive. And what to do in the attic? What you always hear that the things that you can change. And I think it's very difficult to know what you can do for the house. And you can get very easily confused and even bamboozled about the potential things that, that you can do and the costs that are associated with all those particularly going into this winter and we have three young kids between two and six so it's always difficult to do work and certainly what attracted us to this house in particular is on the surface it looked like nothing needs to be done but then you never actually know it until you get the keys and feel the drafts coming through at night time. We've been in, in house before where you, you kind of you can't go around in bare feet because just draft that's coming in along the floorboards and the kind of the girls were sleeping in those rooms. So until you're actually in the house, you don't know. It, again, it's finding that balance and hopefully with the, the survey that, that's here and being able to identify some of the areas that, that maybe are that the cold is coming in that we're able to address those quite easily we can at least be a bit more assured in going through the winter that's you know there's not much more we can do for this winter So it was time to get to work Evelyn and how does the service work? Well they take over your home for a couple of hours and they seal the front door and all the gaps like fireplaces and then it's a bit like getting a scan you know they can assess the gaps in walls or heating is leaking so what they do is it's described as kind of a home energy audit and they use their fancy thermo imaging using infrared technology Claire to help you with this now and obviously if you have a big budget the world is your oyster for solutions but most of us, of course, just want simple tricks and solutions and plenty of those on offer from the team. So here Daniel Slevin from the company gives us a tour of the house with the fans going on in the background and here he tells us more. So we are standing inside the house here and the first thing I see is, where's the front door gone? The front door is still there. What you're looking at there is a blower door. It creates a vacuum within the house which causes the cold air from outside to try and make its way in anywhere it can. It cools everything in its path and at that point we will scan every door wall, window, floor, ceiling, every part of the house. So this is how the whole process starts. Like, let's describe it. It's like a red plastic door with a fan in the middle of it. So you start by sealing off the house. Yeah, absolutely. Temporarily for the duration of the test. We'll seal all design ventilation openings, such as chimneys, cooker hoods, vents, extractor fans, anywhere that's designed to let air in or out of the house. We then put the blower door in the front door. That creates the vacuum. So effectively, it's like a storm blowing on every aspect of your house from the outside. 
we'll then get our high-end thermal imaging equipment. We'll scan every part of the house. Okay, so, so let's come around the back here. So you're looking for trouble? Absolutely. Any thermal weaknesses or thermal breaks or anywhere that isn't sealed correctly, we'll be able to detect them in real time. So when you arrive at a house like this, which is a really familiar kind of semi-detached four-bed family home, what are you anticipating of the car on your way in? We'll start profiling the house from the moment we step out of the van. Probably going to be built from cavity block, potentially serious air leakage and heat loss through the two chimneys. Depending. So as you pull up, you're already starting to anticipate what might be ahead. We're doing this 15 years. Yeah, we're profiling from even from the minute we get the call. Obviously, people are moving more and more towards stoves, but people like an open fireplace. But that's that's really causing trouble. Absolutely. Like if I was never to take out a piece of kit or a piece of technology, the first thing I would be saying to someone would be seal their chimneys. Obviously, they have to remain vented. An open fire for all its beauty, you're losing 60% of your heat up the chimney from, from an open 60%? Absolutely. I have an open fire. Well, the chimney is designed to draw air up and it's acting as effectively an extraction fan there all the time. So you're losing heat all the time. And is it easy to seal it? Yeah, it is an easy process. Do it with DIY stuff. I tend to recommend getting the professionals in for the sake of €100. The benefit of that €100. Oh, absolutely. Without a shadow of a doubt. I better go. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I ran. Uh, a lot of chat about chimneys in particular, but here Dan continued investigations talking about windows, for example, as well. And then we also spoke to Thomas Broderick, who's the thermographer who was on site. He's also been working this area for years and here both of them. Tell us more. Lifting the blinds here, Evelyn, so that we can get access to the window handle. So this is the window at the back of the house. You're going to pop open the window here. Why are you doing that? I just wanted to demonstrate the pressure that we're putting on the insulated fabric of the house. So if I open this window, you'll probably hear a draft as well. So you can hear that there. That's oh my goodness. That's when you open the window a tiny fraction. I can hear this. Anywhere there are any weaknesses, we're going to pick them up because the cold air will be cooling them down. The equipment that we have, it's effectively the same as having 800,000 thermometers in a single image monitoring each part of that image. Okay, so let's keep going with our investigations. What advice do you have for front doors and back doors, particularly if you have young children, you know, who love kind of thundering through the house and leaving doors open? What people don't realise is the opening parts of doors and windows need to be serviced regularly. Just keep them working. Like the tyres on your car, they will wear down. The rubber seals on your doors and windows, they will deteriorate. That doesn't mean you need a new window or a door. That just means you need new rubbers in your windows and doors. Where people might be thinking of getting new windows, they might get another 10, 15 years out of their doors and windows. You know, there's some people, posh people, have like curtains inside a front door. Like, does that work? Absolutely. If it's feasible and they don't have young kids that will be trying to climb up the curtains. <laughs> curtains didn't come about for cosmetic reasons. They came about to keep the heat in, to keep light out, stuff like that. I do love chimneys. I love chimneys. <laughs> <laughs> you, yeah, go on. The stove is the ideal thing for the chimney. Really? You just think an open fire, we're wasting our time. You're losing a lot of heat. Tell me about floorboards. Floorboards are good as well, as long as they're sealed. Where you get a lot of cold air penetrating is at the wall floor joints. That's at the bottom of the skirting boards if they're not sealed properly. Now, you were talking about the fact that the house has a B or C2, is it? Yes. But, I mean, how much work do people really have to put in and invest to raise a BR? Well, once they get the BR done, the BR assessor will advise them what needs to be done in the house. But mainly by... Uh, is it always just thousands and thousands? No, it's not. It can be simple fixes. You as promise well, me now. Absolutely. <laughs> Time for the results then. And Kieran was going to get advice from the team. Yeah, it was a bit funny, like getting your exam results because they get this detailed report from the team from snowcomb.ie. Bit of nerves, how would things pan out? So here we sat down in the garden to get the results of that survey from Dan and Tomas. 
come across a lot of the standard issues, windows and doors as well. Now these windows, are, I'm told, are about 10 years old. I would consider that new. They are, and they're in very good condition. But you'd also come across windows that are relatively new that mightn't be in as good a condition. A lot has to do with the fitting of the windows as well. But in Kieran's case, the fitting is very good. It's just that some of the windows have deteriorated a little bit over time, be it hinges and various things like that, or seals that may need adjusting or replacing. What else are you going to be saying to Karen then? I know, Karen is very happy. <laughs> There's another issue we came across as well with um, downlights, particularly downlights in the upstairs area of the house. Does a downlight to a civilian like me mean the lights that are in the ceiling? Yes, indeed. Okay. Um, you've got your normal centre light, your pendant light, as they mm-hmm. call it, with the cable hanging down, but you've also got your recessed light, yes. like a downlight. A lot of those can let cold air in as well, between the bulb and the, and the unit really? fitting itself. So what we'd be recommending is to put in sealed downlight units there, yes. Like how much work is that? Very simple, very simple, really? just swap out, swap in. That's, yeah, and that solves a lot of problems also. Plus, one other issue that Kieran has is just around the attic hatch. There's yeah. uh, cold air penetrating from the attic. Again, that's easily fixed with several options that we've given to Kieran as well. Exactly. You can get attic tents, this little tent unit that fits above it and stops the drafts coming down. And really? just, you want to go up to the attic, you just move it aside. So it's a simple fix. You're getting a new tent into your attic. Oh, uh, that's <laughs> it. More camping gear. It'll be brilliant. Evelyn O'Rourke on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne, having visited a family in their new home to look at heating strategies. The great John Spallan was on this afternoon's Ray Darcy show, talking with Ray and playing some tunes from his long career. Here he is, about to play one of his most famous songs, Prince's Street. So what are you going to sing for us first? Thank you so much. I'll sing the, the oldest song, which is a song called Prince's Street. Great. And it's, my, it's, my, it's out as a single yes. at the moment with the orchestra. I'll do two minutes of that. I'll be yeah. very happy with that. Great, great. Thanks so much, Ray. Thanks, John. Spent Monday on Strawberry Hill Till I fell and I landed on your windowsill I hung there by a golden fine web I had woven from hair of your head I spent Tuesday just walking through town Till I saw a gold angel come tumbling down And waltzing with seagulls up in an elm tree Where the wind runs her fingers above the dark leaves and oh, will ya meet me on Saturday night? We'll dance in the shadows between the streetlights. Between these two rivers, I know where we'll meet on Princess Street. I spent Wednesday doing nothing at all. Till late in the evening, the wind came to call. Stood at my window and danced a handstand The sun on her shoulder, boards in her hands Oh, will ya meet me on Saturday night? We'll dance with your ankles all bathed in moonlight Between these two rivers I know where we'll meet On Princess Street Lovely Thank Who needs so an orchestra? <laughs> but it, no, it did. And I heard it. Uh, I was in the car recently and somebody played it. Uh, and it just hopped off the radio. Oh, uh, and it's there. So that's, the, that's the lead single, as they say, from uh, In Another Light, uh, which is John recorded live in the Cork Opera House with the Cork Opera House Concert Orchestra and uh, revisited and reimagined uh, all the songs that you'll know John 
for from over the years. How many years? Is it forty? Is it forty years? It's actually forty years. Is it forty years? Thirty nine, forty. Like it's a bit of a vague. Uh, <laughs> it took me a while to write it and stuff. And were you singing that while singing on Princess Street? Yeah, I was busking on Princess Street, yeah. and uh, I looked up and I saw the sign, and it said Princess Street, Shroud and Frunza, and I said, Oh, it's the Prince, you know, because when you when you when you do more than one language, you see different things, you know. Right. So I said, oh, I'd never thought of the Prince. It's a street we take for granted. It was the first street in Cork that was pedestrianised and we used to busk in it and hang out there like yeah. in the English market is there. You can see the fish on top of Shandon in the distance from Princess Street. Uh, my family lived in Princess Street long ago. Lots of connections. So, um, yeah, it was a big breakthrough song for me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just because we skipped over that, the, the opera. So that's good news as well. You're getting funding for an opera that you're writing... In Gaelga and, and Berla. Yeah, I've been working on this project for a number of years now and I'm delighted to, you know, that I've got support from the Irish Arts Council now for it and I'm going to be mentored by some really good people. Yeah. And uh, I've been, I've done workshop, I've been workshopping this in, for uh, the last couple of years. It's called Fiorishka, the Legend of the Loch. It's about the loch in Cork. It's a lake on the south side of the city uh. and there's a fabulous, beautiful legend about the well that overflowed and the jealous king and his beautiful daughter, Fiorishka. So it's like, you know, Ireland is full of these wonderful yes. stories. So this is a kind of a deep myth about the formation of the landscape yeah. that I'm... It's, a, it's an opera, yeah. And, and will, will it be stuff like the, like the Ferry Bank, the, the song we mentioned there? Because there's something... And I know I keep going back, but there's something very special about that song. You know, the, the mixture of sort of punk folk and opera together in, in one song. It's very interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the high and the low. Yeah, yeah. the high and the um, low. The yeah. high and the low. Um, yeah. yeah, so... I think that there is a lot of stuff in our culture which has yet to be explored, mm. like folk tales. I think there's a lot of, you know, our mythology is huge. So I'm kind of dipping the toes into the, to the lock and I want to see if we can make it sound big. Yeah, great. Uh, when will that be? Ah, yeah. Well, I mean, um, what I'll probably do is I will do, I will be mentored now yes. um, by a lovely man called Lilla Solera, who's a great authority in Irish traditional singing and Shanos. And by an old friend of mine who's a, an expert on the Bardic schools, you know, one of the things that makes Ireland different from all the other countries in the world is that we had a professional um, cast of poets here for many centuries. Right. So we got the poetry, we got the music. So um, so they were paid just to write poetry and... Yeah, they were paid to, you know, right. there was a, a Gaelic order which, right. probably, which fell apart in the 17th century, you could say. But yeah, a professional team of poets, uh, which uh, scholars would tell you are actually a remnant of an old pagan system you know, that never died out when Christianity came in here. Yeah. Don't get me going, Ray. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> um, we got you half going already. So <laughs> I kissed the Blarney Stone three times, man. I can't stop talking. Don't you love the way Ray said, so they were paid just to write poetry? The legendary John Spillane there talking to Ray Darcy this afternoon. Finally, on this edition of Playback Daily, 2FM's Dave Fanning joined Claire Byrne to talk about his favourite classic concert films. And they started with what many people consider to be the best concert film of them all, Stop Making Sense. The first thing is, like, I was a major Talking Heads fan, and this was up to their fifth album. I mean, the first album was amazing, second album, in fact, that song there is from the first album, Psycho Killer, and the second album, even better, and the third album, Fear of Music, is my favourite. Then the next one, they went into something completely different, with, like, art, funk kind of music and polyrhythmic world beat explorations, and it was just amazing. Rhythm, uh, Remain in Light, it's called. Best song they ever did is on that album, actually. Anyway, the point about it is, is that then they came up with this stuff here. And this stuff here, they were touring this album at the time, and it's called Speaking in Tongues, and they decided 
to just to do this um, three nights at the Pantages Theatre in Los Angeles. By the way, it was filmed, or the director is uh, went on to win every single Oscar gone a few years later, all the six major Oscars, including Best Director, Best Movie for Silence of the Lambs, Jonathan Demme. Uh-huh. But it's just, it's just so clever and so whatever. Like, I mean, David Byrne is... Odd. I mean, back in 77, before it all happened, I mean, David Byrne was in New York as a real art band here playing in these scuzzy places like CBGP's. And the other side of it was the Ramones. It was an amazing movement going on there. And he just, by, the, by 84, and this, this is 84, it's just astonishing, just the gig itself. First of all, it's just a gig. There's no other extraneous stuff. And most of these things that you could talk about that are live concert things has backstage stuff or filling in stuff or on the road stuff. But this is just the concert. And he starts off with this thing here. Then the two other, ba- the three other band members come out, particularly uh, Tina Weymouth and Chris Franz who are the bass and uh, who are the rhythm section I'll call it and um, that's drums and bass and they're husband and wife actually and the, like when the thing happens then they bring out other musicians like Bernie Whirl who's just fantastic you know, he played a magical mystery tour with Clapton and Hendrix and the Kinks and Young Americans David Bowie's probably best known for he gives it the funk and he was with Funkadelic and all that and then you own whatever her name is Laura Myers or Laura, Laura, Laura Maybury she sings and the whole thing just comes into the best black music ever from this educated white guy from New York and it's that's really just, what it is I I love watching that bit at the start where he comes out with the tape recorder and his guitar and yeah. he starts off and he's got all of that energy. But while he's singing, they're building the set behind they're him. They're building everything. And they're bringing and, everything But when out. the musicians come out and they all start going with all the stuff and then he puts on the suit for um, Girlfriend is Better and all that. And the suit's the funniest thing. He said he always wanted his head to be smaller. So somebody said, well, then make your body bigger. So he wears <laughs> this suit that's like the size of Liberty Hall, you know. And he's sort of, it's just, it's just... Really good, and he was always really good. He came out recently to say that he's got autistic spectrum disorder. So he's up there with Einstein and 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 Charles Darwin and Bill Gates and all the rest of them. So he's doing fine. And mm-hmm. he's like he was on the cover of. Uh, Time magazine once they say he's rock's renaissance man and they mentioned 20 different things like visual artist performer music musician theatre person film person photographer and, everything, and said they all said uh, the, the article was basically saying and quite rightly he's a jack of all trades and a master of them all of as all. well so he, he, it's just brilliant it's, um, a, it's fantastic When that came out in Dublin you went to see it at the Ambassador uh, yeah, One of my great memories of the 1980s is the fact that do you remember uh, what do you call it the, the Rocky Horror Picture Show Yeah Okay and I remember seeing that in the cinema it didn't really mean much to me and then it became this cult thing Everyone dressed for up and twenty years or something yeah, in, in Rathmines every Friday. Night. I never went to it, yeah. and people throwing confetti at the right places and mouthing the right words and that. Well, they did the same thing. I don't know if it was the record company or what, but they did the same thing at the Ambassador at the top of O'Connell Street for about maybe fifteen weeks in a row on a Friday night. And I go out for a pint, and then you bring your friends. You have to go and see this. So we went about six or seven times. I just went every time; it was brilliant. But one night I went had some people there, and I went, "This is good enough." So I actually went back to the back of the cinema, climbed up these old stone steps, and the guy. I sitting there reading the paper and he's got a pipe do people smoke pipes anymore? Uh, you don't, never had, see them he had a pipe that was kind of the little red bits coming out of it and he, it was sitting in the in the ashtray and he had no interest at all I said sorry excuse me I don't mean to interrupt but any chance I could turn that up and he said pointed to a lever so I just pulled this lever and the place went mad it was fantastic the power so we went down I don't know if you know the end of the movie but he runs around the stage and does all this kind of thing I mean at least two of the nights every single person in the cinema ran around, ran around. I mean it's, I know it's pathetic but it was absolutely brilliant you missed your calling you could have been, could have been yeah. working in the cinema yeah, exactly. after that it's so the, the, the next one we want to go to now is Martin Scorsese's Rolling Stones film Shine a Light which documented the 2006 performance at the Beacon Theatre in New York this is different from what we've just been talking about because it's interspersed with archive footage yeah. isn't it um, backstage planning meeting the Clintons and others and you see yeah. Mick Jagger going through what he wants to look like etc yeah. and then the gig itself so let's, let's have a listen Why do you keep on doing it? A stupid question 
No, no, no. I mean, a lot of it, it may sound a stupid question, but to a lot but of it people, it is a stupid question. And I'm fed up with being asked it. I mean, it's idiotic. It's like, why do you do what you're doing? Why is this oh, man? I see love. I see misery. In that theatre, Marty, that's a very tight space to put three cranes. And the other thing is, they're going to swoop around and move around, and, and and the audience will, you know, be distracted by them. And they can, you know, the movement of them is quite dangerous too, you know, for the people working back there. He was producing it. As well, yeah, almost. but I mean, like, there's a lot of talking stuff in this, as there is in a lot of movies that are concert movies. And just Do you remember, mind that? oh yeah, I can take that too. Yeah. Oh god, absolutely. But I mean, like, if it's just pure concert, the concert bits in this. I mean, the Rolling Stones played Slane in '81, and they were already nearly 20 years on the go. And people were talking in the papers about you know oxygen masks and Zimmer frames. It can't be 20 years in a rock and roll band. That's too much kind of stuff. And yet, you know, this is 26 years later. No, sorry, 46 years yeah. later. Whatever the hell it is, I mean, they've been going what, what 60 years now. We were maybe? talking about this this morning before we came really? on air, saying. These right. guys, yeah, what are they years made st- of? So this is 2006, so it's 25 years after sort of slain or whatever. So the point is that um, this, uh, it is for the Clintons. It's a charity kind of thing and they're playing and there is a bit too much talking in it. But when the performances happen, some of the songs are from Exile on Main Street. Now, there was Beggar's Banquet, Let It Bleed and Sticky Fingers and then came out this album in 1971 called Exile on Main Street, which a lot of people thought at the time, yeah, whatever. It's absolutely, probably most Stones fans would say it's the best album and it probably is. And there's loads of tracks on it. You don't, You kind of forget what's on it. So the, this movie is called Shine a Light, which is taken from that. But there's one song on it just when Jack White comes out and helps to sing. It's a loving cup. And it's just, look at the stones. I mean, for God's sake, are they the greatest rock and roll band in the world? How dare you ask the question? I mean, it's <laughs> but just why were bad. people mew about the album when it came out first? Ah, well, I mean, oh, about, about Exile I mentioned. No, yeah. the word mew about it. It's just that the previous ones had been so, if you like, commercial. They went to the south of France, took the wrong things maybe. But the sloppiness of the production is so fantastic. It's just everything that the stones should be is on Exile Main Street. Dave Fanning talking concert films on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne. I know, I know, we only got to two of them, but that's the constraints of the 57 minutes and 40 seconds catch-up show formula. You can hear the rest of Dave's picks on the RTE radio player. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Shirathon. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio player. And there'll be another episode of Playback Daily at the same time on Monday. Probably. Until the next time, though, thank you for listening and good luck.